0: Hey, .NET ROCKS fans, Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April.
1: Rocks episode 957 with guest Rob Connery. Recorded live Friday, February 28th, 2014. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at com. And by Franklins.net, makers of GesturePack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePak.com. And now, here are Carl and
0: Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard, and we're here for your entertainment and amusement, and maybe we'll learn something. What's up, my friend?
2: It's late in the day on Friday, and so I have a glass
0: of Benrenus Scotch, a 15-year-old single malt from the space. I have some Kentucky Firewater. It's uh, the Angel's Envy variety. Ah, very nice, very very nice. nice, And and I'm saying late in the afternoon. It's 2 o'clock here in
1: Vancouver,
2: but it's 5 o'clock where
1: (laughs) you are, so... So there we go.
2: There we go. Cheers Cheers. to you.
1: Cheers to you, Rob. Rob is with us. Thank you very much. It's noon here, so I'm drinking water, but cheers. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) It's almost the same. And we'll we'll venture outside of the normal format in lieu of our uh, our freestyle guest. So here we go. Uh, Cheers to you. I'm going to take a sip now. Excellent. And with that, (laughs) let's roll the Better Know framework music, Mm -hmm. such as Mm -hmm. it is. All right, buddy, what do you got? Every once in a while, I go looking for a definitive, um, shall I say, blog post or a video that sort of illustrates the new features of something or the coolest parts of something. And the best I can come up with is something at MSDN that's sort of dry and not, you know, sort of from the horse's mouth. And while all the facts are there, it's sort of lacking enthusiasm and... Uh, sort of has doesn't have the the wheat separated from the chaff as it were and then uh, I started going to plural site and searching there and trying to find if there are any plural videos on the topic and turns out that's where I'm finding a lot of great stuff lately so really yeah so I went looking for something on CodeLens I love CodeLens and there are some yeah. blog posts from last year but there wasn't really anything uh current that I could find anyway in the first few pages of Google Bang. So then I found Deb Corada's Mastering Visual Studio twenty thirteen on PluralSight, which you can get to at tinyurl.com slash VS2013 class, which includes thirty-three minutes on code lens. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot That's of, a of, lot code, of code, lens. code lens. And this feature is vast. And it there's even more stuff than I knew about. So um, I took a look at that, and uh, I'm just even more. And the only thing that's that sucks about CodeLens is it's not available for all Visual Studio. Yeah, just Ultimate, yeah. which is not a trivial no. thing. But, you know, if you want to salivate and give your boss a, a good reason to upgrade, oh, my God, what, what a great feature.
2: Well, it's just about making developers more productive. Mm. Like, it may be the thing that you can pay back the cost of an ultimate on, yeah,
0: it might be that thing, Richard. You're absolutely right. I mean, if you multiply that across the number of developers and the amount of time that's saved, and just the the decisions, the decision point, you know, what is what's the thing that um, uh, that you talk about in your talk, Richard, where you say the amount of time that goes by, uh, in between features, uh, the uh, the more time that goes by, yeah, yeah, checking in the
2: feature. And the bugs actually getting reported back to you from the automated testing directly affects the amount of time it takes to fix the bug. Right. So if a week
0: goes by, the, the, the uh, developers like, well, hell, I don't know what this is all about. No, I said a day,
2: you know, like it, it, because programming, you know, you got to hold that stuff in your head and it only stays there so long. So, you know, by the next day, you've, you're no longer in the space where you're really thinking about the code. The, the real impact is when I was able to get the automated testing down to less than 10 minutes. Yeah. So that by, you know, you check in code, what do you do next? Right. You go get coffee. Right. If by the time you get back from coffee, the bug reports already on your desk, you could so fix code it lens very fast. So, is one fast. of
0: these things that puts a little IntelliSense, a little text above a method, and it'll tell you stuff like where are the tests? Who is the last person that checked it in? Who, what was, you know, right? In other, who broke the build? In other words, the little things like that. So just good stuff and, uh, go check it out at tinyurl.com slash VS 2013 class. And of course that, you know, it's Deb Carada. She's like old school object. She taught us all objects in the VB space years ago. And uh, she's, she's a, a veteran in the industry and she knows what she's talking about. So it's a great class in and of itself, but 33 minutes on code lens is just great. All right, awesome. well, Richard, who's talking to us?
2: I grabbed a comment off of show 949, and that is the one we did with Tatabody Body down in Australia where we talked about Neo4j. Yeah. And this comment comes from John Cornell, who says, "Is that What a great show! I started using Neo4j about a year ago to complete a pet project I had been writing and rewriting for a few years. A while back, I was working with a certain large U.S. software vendor, huh. hint, where all good software goes to die. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Whoever says that, I can't, I can't imagine. somebody
0: said that, really.
2: That's pretty funny. Where we had acquired a metadata repository application that helped companies with unruly or usually stovepipe databases and source code to get a handle on how their data, code, and business entities related together. It was a great application for its time, though underappreciated by the company, and I had some great experiences implementing it around the world. The main problem was that at certain scales, it was cumbersome and heavy, and I was certain I could do better, so I set about time after time to do so. I love this, that he had a problem, like a little needle in the back of his mind he couldn't let go until he could crack Mm -hmm. it. As with the original app, due to the complex nature of the entities and relationships that could be modeled, it was always the data model that let me down again. All the apps I wrote felt just as heavy as the one I used to work with. In researching NoSQL systems in response largely to your podcasts... I came upon Graph Databases and choosing Neo4j and writing my own REST-based API, I had a functional, blinding-fast proof-of-concept written a week of train-based commuting. So he wrote it on the train in a period of a week. As Tatum pointed out in the show, Graph Databases are just a tool in a tool bag. However correctly implemented, I found this particular tool to be a godsend. It's a cool story, John. Thanks for that. You know, I love that you just gnawed away at this problem until you tackle it from a different angle and got a good solution to it. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about some interesting NoSQL ideas today. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, John, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET or any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows 8, and Windows Phone 7 and 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app?
0: Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And before we go any further, let me tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. They have hundreds of hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release over 40 new courses a month and offer a free 10-day trial with a wide range of topics, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, pretty much anything and everything Microsoft. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at just 29 bucks a month. And that brings us to our special guest, who you heard from already. Rob Connery is co-founder of TechPub, which is now part of Pluralsight. Are you noticing a trend here with the show? I don't know. Weird. (laughs) Co-host of This Developer's Life and creator of Subsonic. Previously, Rob worked at Microsoft on the ASP.NET team. Uh, Rob specializes in simple design forged in the doing of things rather than the philosophy of what an application should be like. He works primarily in ASP.NET MVC, but transitioned much of his work into Ruby on Rails. He lives in Kauai, Hawaii, with his wife Kathy and two daughters, Madeline and Ruby. Hi, Rob. Welcome. Hello, gentlemen. Always nice to talk to you, and thank you. Uh, it's so nice to talk to you, man. Always good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, TechPub plural site. Great. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Yep it, it was uh, it was time. They yeah. uh, they they were building steam and it, and I just thought to myself you know it's more fun with more people around <laughs> I think I'd rather sure. join up why not sure yeah why not
0: and uh, so you're a dilettante now basically
1: yes exactly
0: join the club
1: and I'm wearing <laughs> <laughs> I'm wearing my dandy clothes and I have a you know, yeah some really silky pants <laughs> yeah.
0: So speaking from somebody who has had to deal with um, six more weeks of winter, and then six more weeks of winter, and then six more. So basically three groundhog days.
1: Thank mm-hmm. you, Rob
0: Connery. <laughs> <laughs> and your Hawaii sunshine.
1: Listen, it's been a very cold winter here. Um, oh really? Actually, has it? Has it gotten
0: to seventy? Really? I 80? had to
1: put on pants the other day. Was just- <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was the line. <laughs> I knew it. He like, had to
2: put on pants, didn't
1: he? He had to put on freaking pants. You didn't put on any shoes, though, did you?
0: No, you're still wearing sandals, but you yeah. got pants on.
1: No, you don't wear socks over here, man. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
0: Uh, I wish I was there. Seriously. Oh man. Oh, man. Beautiful place. Beautiful place. So, so what's new with you? You're thinking about sequel versus no sequel, and, um, some new revelations have come to mind.
1: You know what? I don't know why I do these things. And this is, (laughs) this is the exact line that I put on the blog post. Then when I introduced what I've been working on, I had an idea, right? So let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. I was working with node the other day and, um, I, I needed a document database, but I didn't want to go and install a service or a, a system. And I thought, don't they have something like SQLite, but for documents? Doesn't that seem like a good idea? And I sure enough found one. It's called NEDB. And um, so I started playing with it and boom, it worked perfectly. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, I wonder if I could do this in .NET. And this is the punchline. I haven't really written an application in .NET in about three years, like one in production that I've had to support. And, but I always wonder that. I wonder if I can do this in, in C Sharp. And so I sat down and I did it. And basically what it is, is an implementation of iCollection of T. And instead of just letting everything sit in memory, it also writes down to to disk. So if you have, let's say, iCollection of product, and you hit add, uh, it'll append uh, some JSON to a file on disk. And what it also does, though, is it keeps that information It keeps that list in memory. So if you want to query it, you just use link to objects in memory and you have it. So it's for really high read situations. So that's where it started. But then I thought, you know, I really like the aspect of having high speed read link to objects. Pretty much your data store could be anything. For now, I'm using a text on, on disk. So I started goofing around with Postgres because Postgres doesn't really have a very good, uh, well, it has a lot of link uh, provider stories, but they're kind of for pay and some of them are, some of them are good, some of them aren't. But so I sat down and I implemented iCollection using the exact same thing, except this time it's going to store it into Postgres because Postgres has a JSON data type. And it worked perfectly. And not only that, but you're querying the in-memory list. You're not hitting the database. You're always hitting in-memory. And then I thought, well, geez, I could do this with SQL server. And sure enough, I did. And then I thought, well, skip the document stuff. I bet I could translate types here and then go against the table. And then we built that. And by this point, I was joined by... um uh, John Van Atten who's been helping me and whew, next thing I know we have this you have best of both worlds super fast link to whatever and uh, also a document store you pick and choose which one you like and it's super fast high high rights too that's what John contributed so hmm. it's been a lot of fun it's been hysterically good fun and uh, that's what I've been doing So you basically
0: wrote a NoSQL database? <laughs>
1: I don't want to say that, but, you know, I think uh, if Oren was listening to this, he'd freak out. Um, no, I wouldn't call it that, but it's sort of like that. its I, I want to call it a shim, uh, a link shim on top of some form of data store. But the neat thing is, is your queries will always be the same because it's linked to objects, but mm. your backing store might change.
0: All right. Yeah. yeah that's so that's it it is it. a link shim. Yeah. How, what would you call that yeah, layer?
1: Guess. A query layer? I guess. I don't know. That's the thing. I'm staring at this and I have no idea what to call it. Um, it's it's hysterically fun, that, <laughs> though, when you're running the benchmarks and you see like, okay, you know, I wrote 100,000 documents to disk and it took, um, I don't know, three seconds um i i did a query Franz Buma was like well, we'll try and do a, a, a zero to n query order n where because you have to scan every single thing when it's in memory in order to do a query if you're using linked objects in memory so try do this and i did and it came back at zero milliseconds <laughs> Dude, <that's, laughs> you're like that didn't oh, work wow that yeah i'm looking at that like really is that what we get within memory because there's no sql translation There's no open connection to the database. There's nothing. It's just held in memory. Yeah. And so it basically brokers data back and forth how you need it. Good Lord. Well, that was a fun
0: trip through space and time, wasn't it? Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, is you consider why people have been using databases up until now. it's just because you can't really work with that data in memory. Otherwise, people probably would. Of course. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But no, man. And most of SQL is in memory,
0: too. You know? I mean... Mm-hmm. Most of SQL is right. in, in memory too. That's the funny thing is that, you know, on modern yeah. SQL servers, they try to keep as much of it in memory as possible. The rule
2: is very simple. How much data does SQL Server need? Mm-hmm. More. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> More. Yeah. Well, this is. Now, the t- only time you find a terabyte of RAM in a computer is for a SQL Server. Yeah. But I have seen a terabyte of RAM in a computer. Wow. That's, That's just nice. people with a lot of money. It's expensive yeah. to put a terabyte of RAM into a computer.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing, I was talking to Carl Sagan once. Um, he actually mentioned this to me, but he also wrote it in his book, The Little Book on Redis, because um, Redis works in much the same way. It uh, keeps everything in memory. Uh, he said the entire works of William Shakespeare come in at around 5.5 megabytes. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. Like yeah. Developers, yeah, Developers often don't have a full grasp of the size of their data. For instance, TechPub's database all of our business, everything I've ever done uh, with all the meta stuff in there as well to run the business um, in a SQL backup straight text file is 6.5 megabytes. So right. you, you really have to try to use up memory these days, especially given Azure gives you a free gigabyte of RAM for the free websites. You know, so it's RAM so yeah. for the lower end. It's a little bit cheap.
2: Yeah. Well, and in, in the reality, it's like a four gig SIM now, I think is $25. Yeah. Right. Like it's <laughs> it's not that expensive. We just have lost track of the insanity of these orders of magnitude that you can you can get so much memory so quickly. And so, yeah, real the big thing here is what is eating all
0: that memory that we need so much. Yeah, it's the, all the support code, you know, the support data.
1: Well, the interesting thing is if you're indexes, if your Stack Overflow. You have to read that stuff in. All right. So that makes sense. But for a lot of applications, I would argue that you you don't want to do that. Like, in other words, if you use a commerce app, um, the things that you want to have bouncing around in memory are the things that you need to read and show right now, like product data um, and anything around like per, uh, promotions, maybe customer information. You need to have that at the ready and, and let's go. But orders, you don't. Uh, orders, you write. You know, and there's reference data, which is just what I call it—reference or input data. There's products and sales information, customer information. But all of that goes into creating orders, which is the real record of your application. And mm. so that should be high-speed write. And so that's what I tried to make something that will facilitate that for you in a really uh, straightforward way.
2: So how are you actually storing this stuff? Are you doing anything interesting here? Is it just CSV?
1: So in a couple different ways. Um, the first is the JSON file. It's just straight up dot JSON. So you can right. order or open it up and look at it. That's just with the file-based stuff. And that's for kind of simple scenarios. If you want to move to a more managed situation, uh, let's say Postgres, which I've been working with a lot, yep. um, then you just say, I want to have a Postgres list. And when you open that up, if the table doesn't exist, it's created for you. Uh, there's a couple of fields in there uh one's called uh the key which is set to the key that you set right the other one is the body which is the serialized json and then in, right. then we also allow for full text search indexing uh in postgres postgres will store the index in the row next to the value of whatever you're trying to index so we have an attribute that you can throw onto like a description property let's say and then if we see that it will serialize everything normally but if we see that what we'll do is we'll create um it's called TS Vector. That's their search field. It'll drop it in. So then you can actually do full text searching on a document database. Right? Which is pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. And you can right. do that. But it, it, are you basically building a form of keywords there then? Uh, the, uh, the engine does that for you. It, it, it right. sniffs out what you're doing. Yeah. And then it does it for you, which is pretty intense stuff. Postgres is an amazing database.
2: Uh, but, uh, I, I used Postgres years ago, but I mean, it is a traditional RDMS as well. It's got a bunch of cool features added to it as on yep. top of that, but you're essentially using it as a document database, right? It's just a big blob of text with a key.
1: That's right. Uh, it's a blob of text. And here's the interesting thing moving forward, which, um, so it's on version 9.3 right now and it has all a bunch of interesting data types like JSON, XML, and so on. Um, but at 9.4, they're going to have BSON which is the binary JSON, which is what MongoDB has as a backing store. Hmm. Not only that, they're going to have a ton of queryability that you can use on top of the BSON, which basically means it's going straight up against MongoDB. (laughs) Hmm. And the one thing that it has that MongoDB doesn't necessarily have is um, ACID write, you know, ACID... um, uh, transactionality. So that, that's right. one complaint that people have about MongoDB is they would lose data because Mongo is an eventual, uh, eventually consistent system, unless, of course, you do safe connections and so on. But with Postgres, you have all the guaranteed stuff of a transactional system When um, all the speed of Mongo. It's amazing. It's really fun to see.
2: Yeah. Although no, it'll be interesting to see the details are, are always the key part, right? Like what it actually takes to implement all of that to make it work. So we'll see if it's actually as fast when you have all those pieces at play. But I'm with you. I, I love the idea of Bson just to lean things out a bit, make the make stuff smaller and, and quicker. And I
0: love the idea of doing it yourself. I mean, I'm I'm like you, man. I even though there's stuff out there, I love re- recreating recreating the wheel, reinventing the wheel. Yeah, just because I like I do- to see how it works, and I I love the mechanics of plumbing. Exactly. Yeah, I love exactly. it.
1: Well, in fairness, I looked for a file-based um, document system uh, for .NET. And there was a couple, but they used some funky, um, funky aspects of the Windows operating system. And I thought, well, you know, people are going to be using this on mono. I can't sure. guarantee it's always going to be Windows. So there were, just wasn't anything out there. So that's where this all started. Hmm.
0: And you wanted that layer of complete layer of abstraction, like, like we said, a sort of a query layer. I don't know what you'd call yeah. it. <laughs> That's still not accurate.
1: Well, it's a couple of steps in there. It's, um, it, it, it rips apart the concept of storage medium, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then two, you're storing your data in memory. So if you think about it, it doesn't really matter where the data comes from. You're right. always querying it in memory. And then finally, the best step to me is link. So you just use link and then decide where you want to store your data. And it can be in a relational structure. It can be in a document structure if you like. It's up to you. And here's the sweet spot. When you're building out something like a customer uh, object for your system, I mean, how many times have you had to say, oh, this guy has to be a different object because I'm using Entity Framework mm-hmm. and you know, this is where the collections go together. You don't have to do that. If you want to throw a cart object right on your customer and store it as a document, go for it. And it really speeds things up so much in terms of development. if you're free of, uh, If you're free of schema restraints that your database puts on you, and you can just go with well typical object oriented programming now
0: it's all in memory or do do you have any do you care about persistence at all or is that just out of uh, your realm that that's
1: oh no no you care about persistence so uh, so when you add a customer in it gets serialized and dropped to disk or you add it out. so all of that is back and forth we always have that uh, it's just the it's just the uh, returning back of information mm. is held in memory mm-hmm. so To step through this all the way, let's take that customer record again. You create it and then you hit add and two things happen. One, the backing list is updated and two, it's written down to disk. Um, and then an event is fired if you have events hooked up, but that's that. Mm. And so it's always in sync. Okay. Which is, which is pretty groovy.
0: Pretty groovy. Wait, that's a different product. And how, (laughs) and so here comes the, you know, the million dollar question.
1: How does it scale? Well, that's the thing I was talking about, the Franz Boomer. Um, it scales it scales in an interesting way. Um, you, As long as you have the memory to hold your data, you're good. And that's the thing that everyone says, oh. So that's one concern. The second <laughs> is order of operations, um, or big yeah. O's, right? Because you're always having to scan everything. There's no indexing with link to objects and memory, so you can't hit an index. So querying over 10,000, 100,000 is pretty whipcrack fast. Um, but if you get up to a million, two million, three million, 10 million, 100 million, then it's going to start slowing down, uh, linearly and it's going to be, or is it linearly? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. It's going to start slowing down and you're going to run out of, you're going to run into trouble. But my answer to Franz was, well, the one thing that you can do is you can drop into a typical orm because behind all of this is massive, which is my, um, little toy project from before. That's just a simple query tool. So if you need, if you have those situations where you're trying to use a million records in memory, which I don't think you should do, but if you are and you're kind of seeing slowdowns, then yeah, just switch back to going straight up against the database and then you won't run into these problems.
0: I see. Well, I I mean, I guess that's pretty good I mean, and it solves your problem. So that's, that's the most important thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: But it's out in the wild You've got it all on yep. GitHub So anybody could work on it or use it It's not like you're keeping anything yep. secret
1: No, nope, no, nope. I put it up there And I flagged it as like This is just a goofy, silly project I'm trying and Hey, you know what, up, though? That's that's how they start That's right It's already been deployed <laughs> to production I can't believe it Really? Like, well, you know, you, couldn't, you don't do that and This person's like, Yep, no. I did it And it works great I'm Like, oh, God <laughs> Oh, no
2: but you know mm. what I find interesting is there's still this piece of I need to do reporting and things. And rather than wanting to write the code, I want to use SQL query tools. Mm-hmm. But because you're already pushing this to Postgres or even SQL Server, I can push this document to SQL Server?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, both. It's They're they're, they're almost at parity right now. So so to carry on with the concept of having an online store, you've got your, your reference material in, in memory, your product, your customer. And here's where it gets interesting It's good if they're documents because you want that detached once a sale happens, right? Because what a lot of people will do in a relational structure is they'll say, oh, let's do a foreign key off to the customer table and a foreign key off to um, the product. Well, that customer is going to change information and that product is going to change and it's going to affect the sale of record. And not a lot of people understand that a sale of record needs to be a time-stamped, in analytical terms, slowly changing over time. You're never supposed to touch it unless it's, some sort of administrative update, right? Mm.
0: The, the pro- really, you should
1: never yeah, touch it. Ever.
2: Once
0: a sale is a sale, should, it should, you should never change. should add, add an addendum to it. Yeah.
2: Well, and the great trap for people who fall into this sort of third normal form of SQL Server thing is that because you've decided you're going to normalize everything, you don't store the price of the product in the invoice. You store it with the product, which means when you change the invoice, you change past
1: sales. Right. Which is yep. wrong, because that's not actually what that's happened. exactly right. Yeah. Yep. And so the neat thing about this is, you're storing this order information, but you have to ask yourself why. And there's a couple of reasons why. One is for customer reference, right? So an invoice and here's your order. But the other is for the sales guys to run reports. And maybe another is, um, you want to have some analytics on based on um, uh, preference, and here are people that bought this also bought that. Well, then you have three use cases right there, and the cool thing is, go ahead and denormalize and tackle those directly. So, for an invoice, you might want to write a document out for the customer, and maybe even attach it to the right. customer record. For the sales, for the sales uh, queries, you're going to want to split out year, day, month, quarter. Uh, you might want to know the gender of the person. You want to know geo data. There's a bunch of stuff you want to know for this sales record, and so that should go in as an individual record trapped in time. And then for the third right. thing, you might want to. Uh, do uh, relevance matching what was the what was the score of of this person or how much time did it take for this person to buy this and so on because then you have metrics that you can turn around and recommend back into your sales engine so i love thinking about data that way rather than just how can i make this all straight up relational and like you said applying to third normal form (laughs) you shouldn't Mm -hmm. because yeah this is analytical stuff this isn't uh, or transactional
0: hey richard Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. Uh, Must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to get some whip crack fast smoking burning data throughput on a massive blob of dumbness. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking, of course, we're going to give away a Telerik DevCraft complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is today, Telerik has a message for you. Mobile apps are dead. What? Rob, mobile apps are dead. (laughs) Watch as Telerik unveils what comes next. Are you stuck with tools and vendors that make you choose between native, hybrid, or a web-based approach? You no longer have to choose. Mobile apps are dead, and there's a new way forward. The new wave is all about building long-lasting and compelling cross-platform and multi-device apps that will forever transform mobile development for the better. Are you ready? Go to mobileappsaredead.com where you'll learn how to pick the right approach for each project, tackle the fragmented and dynamic mobile ecosystem, elevate your productivity and shorten time to market, and create compelling experiences across platforms and devices. mobileappsaredead.com Watch the free online keynote from Telerik and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET rocks. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Our winner today, Richard Patrick Robbins.
2: Nice. Congratulations, Patrick. Yeah. i clap for you, sir.
0: I got the clappers here. And Patrick wins a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection. Just about everything Telerik makes in one box is a $2,000 value. Hey, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to com. click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. We give away stuff in every show. And every December, we give away five grand worth of technology to one lucky member, of the fan club, and Rob, you know what's coming. If you had five thousand dollars right now to spend on technology, what would you buy?
1: A lot of beer. <laughs> <laughs> Very technical beer. Techno beer. <laughs> That's right. Uh, new brewing system. I don't know. What would I buy? <laughs> yeah.
0: Fishing gear.
1: <laughs> do you do any fishing? Say something.
0: Do you do any? Do you do any fishing in uh, Hawaii?
1: Uh, sometimes, sometimes, yeah.
0: Yeah, so maybe a new, I don't know, a new boat. I don't know. Five grand won't get you much of a boat, though. No.
1: No, it won't. It'll get you a nice rowboat. That's about yeah, it. Yeah. A dinghy. Surfing? Surfboard? I could buy a surfboard. I'd probably, no, I'd probably buy some new brew equipment. So, um, was I supposed to say something? I'm sorry, I was, I was distracted by well, something Well,
0: if else. you <laughs> had $5,000 to spend
1: on technology, what would you buy? Let's see. Um, man, you know, I, I, here's the problem. I tend to binge. I don't. I don't limit myself. <laughs> I, I binge. So I, I like. I was just at the Mac store the other day, and like, I think I need a new laptop, even though I have a perfectly good one sitting in my house. <laughs> but this one had one terabyte drive and blah blah blah. So uh, you know, it's the, the I was just thinking today. I was thinking about getting a nice new Windows machine, and uh, so maybe I guess I get one of those. Uh, whatever Hanselman reviews, I, I tend to just buy. Nice. So.
2: <laughs> and brew equipment as in homebrew beer.
1: Oh yeah, can I can I go off on this? Sure, yeah, ten seconds. Oh, absolutely. So they they have this new system out. It's called the Braumeister, and uh, it's from Mm. Germany. And basically, it's an all-in-one brewing system. My wife teased me. She said it's just a it's like a bread maker for beer. I'm like, oh, it's this great. (laughs) It's got a computer attached to it, right? So it's this thirty or fifty gallon, depending on which size you need, or I'm sorry, uh, liter thirty or fifty liter, depending on the size. And you fill it with water. You dump your grains in and then you program it to, to hit the temperatures and the boil points you need. And it beeps at you when you need to come and change anything. And then basically you come back and you dump it all in your fermenter. And wow. for me, you know, brewing, brewing is kind of a manual process. That's a little bit fun. But that's where I always screw up, and for like the engineer part of me, yeah. oh my goodness, this thing—it has made the best beer I've ever had.
0: You don't like to so, sit over a vat of yeast and measure the bubbles, in other words.
1: Oh, I always screw things up. I drop stuff. <laughs> I burn myself. You know, and it's like, <laughs> it's just, uh, let's let's re- let's remove this. My old forty-six-year-old body can't handle this <laughs> anymore. Lifting nice. five gallons of boiling liquid off the ground? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah.
2: So. Two grand for the 20 liter Braumeister.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's not much. That's the one I just so
2: you got more to spend, man.
0: We need some you know, additional I, toys. Do you need a fermenter oh, as well? I'd buy two of them. Well, I bet you could spend $2,500 just in, you know, grain and yeast.
1: Oh, sure. I know there's also, they have a chilling fermenter at this site. You're looking at morebeer.com. Oh yeah, and uh, they have a they have a fermenter, a stand up fermenter that chills itself down to the right temperatures, and that one's two grand as well. So there you yeah, go. I think another Braumeister and a bigger Braumeister, and a, there you go. That's what I would. Yeah, think. that's technology. So when's nice. it, when do I get the check? What's going on?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to join the fan club first, and. Uh... There you I kind of think if you won, that uh, a whole bunch of mere mortals would be very mad. But
1: uh... mm. <laughs> mere mortals, oh dear. Yeah. <laughs>
0: okay. I, I've, uh, I mean, I've
2: learned as a speaker at conferences, you don't want to win anything. No, nope. nothing good comes of no. you winning. Let the let the let the attendees That's win. Right. You know, let the the attend the folks who paid to be there. They get to yeah. win everything. Mm. We'll all live
0: longer. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I forgot. I was at some conference, and I, I think it might have been mixed. And one of the speakers was trying to scheme on how he can go grab an extra. Because he used to give, off, give out Xbox stuff, and he was trying to scheme and how he can go grab extras. And I'm like, dude, 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 dude come, come on. Dude, come on. What are you doing? Yeah. You were invited to speak here. And I, I don't, I might speak up against people online, but rarely, rarely in person. I, but I kind of gave this guy an earful. I thought that's just out of line. You shouldn't be doing that.
2: Yeah. There are people that spend thousands to be here. This show's actually yeah. for them. Hey, let's jump back into this because you've tweaked my thinking on this whole thing. You know, most folks talk about these new styles of storing and handling data, the, the NoSQL movement, or however you want to coin it, as about speed, 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 speed. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you store the document intact, the order intact, the invoice intact. Mm-hmm really speaks volumes. Like that's a very powerful thought that it's just like, hey, when that that transaction, which is permanent, it's part of the record, mm-hmm. should just be stored as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if the customer changes their address or prices change or product names change or any of those things. At the moment of the transaction, that thing is there intact. Mm-hmm. And the only excuse I can make for us n- having not done that forever is it used to be that storage space was expensive. That's right. Hmm. And it just isn't anymore.
1: Hmm.
0: Well, I know. I know Raven does that too, right? Um, one of the things that uh, we talked to Iende about, and and that's that's what he does. He basically just takes a whole document, stores it as you know as one big blob, and then searches through it to find and replace uh, pieces okay. of it, and then builds indexes sort of on the fly uh, in the background.
1: Yeah, Raven is almost exactly Raven is kind of this idea. It's I uh, please, Orin, don't yell at me. But it's this kind <laughs> of the idea. He's got he's got Lucene underneath this. Yeah. And and he stores documents in Lucene, but he's also he's all he's basically talking to Lucene, storing things, and he's got a bunch of hijacked stuff in there. Yeah. But it's basically the same thing. For instance, I was thinking about this just yesterday. Um we wanna have a lot of storage mediums. So um, what is the azure table storage right it's key value store sure. but hey you know you tell me the primary the, the what's it called the primary key the secondary key we'll store everything as a, as a json blob and the content value yeah. and boom you're now you're using azure table storage which is an amazingly fast way of doing things mm-hmm. i was also thinking about using uh, elastic as a back end mm-hmm. because now you have complete searchability over your document store tell us so, about Elasticsearch. Cool. Elasticsearch is an open source data store, like, you know, Lucene and Solar and Sphinx, I was the other one. Anyway, they, they were kind of the hotness for a while where you could just store JSON in there and you could search it using some really, really high fidelity, um, full text searching. Now, Elasticsearch is kind of the newest thing. It's a REST based, um, document store and it's lightning fast. A lot of people love it. Um, and a lot of people have been playing around with it as a primary, uh, primary data store. And if you think about it, um, Richard, coming back to what you were saying, if you think about re- reference data versus analytical data, right? This is perfect because reference data should be highly searchable. It should be um, quick read, ready at the fingertips, so you can you can give it to people, so then they can go and buy something from you, and then make a, a historical record. So yeah, mm-hmm. something like Elasticsearch would be great um, because then you have all kinds of ways of querying it and getting getting at the data. So anyway, and it's just a matter of implementing iCollection. On top of it and then hooking it into our stuff and you're you're good to go and then you can use link yeah which is great
2: great, right link i mean you know Correct. the other piece that we're getting at here is this idea that we don't need to organize our data so heavily for search anymore our search tool capabilities are pretty serious and we've got languages and constructs to take care of a lot of these things if, I, if you if i put on my old database guy hat you know, what Ted Codd was talking about with the original relational database models was about decomposing data so that it was easier to query. Mm-hmm. That was the job. But it it the work doesn't seem worth it anymore. It's just not necessary.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and we don't need data engines to query anymore. We have link. And I, so this is going to sound really contentious. So, and I don't mean to be insulting or contentious, but Every time I work in C-sharp, I am blown away mm. at how amazing this language is. Mm. Link is nuts. You can use Dynamics mm. if you want. You have all these lists that can do certain things. Uh, you now have Async built right in. And I'm just sitting here. I pound my face on my desk sometimes just thinking, you know, you look at the Node world and the Ruby world and Python even, they're exploding with new ideas and new ways of doing things. And I'm just thinking, wow, you know, with the power of C-sharp, What's going on with the .NET community? Right. They should be leading innovation worldwide. Because my God, what a gift of a language! It's just it's wonderful. wonderful. It really it is, is wonderful. Mm-hmm. And you know, you can certainly on the other side
0: of Link, you have services. The async stuff allows you to hook into services that can return data from anything. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yep. Well, that's wonderful. the one last thing you guys asked me about scaling too, and um, the other thing I was going to say is. I built this with the idea in mind that web apps these days, if you look at MVC5 uh, controllers and all that, they are being built asynchronously. So the response, you know, it just says, okay, you know, thread, go off and do something else, which is utterly fascinating because now your web app doesn't need as many resources to scale. This is exactly the way Node works, Mm -hmm. and it's inspired by Node. So now scaling has become a lot easier. Mm. And so, you know, the concerns we've had before really are going away.
2: They're they're just different. And uh, nope. and and we've our mechanisms have changed. I mean, I've made a lot of money off of SQL. SQL was a good thing and, and I think it still has a role. But mm-hmm. when you're looking greenfield at building new projects and, and really thinking about the kinds of data you need to store and how you need to store it, it gets harder and harder to justify the ever increasing cost of SQL as well. It's true you know they mm-hmm. they they hit a new high with this latest version in terms of pricing it is
0: not an inexpensive product and, anymore and yet they still do it i mean i'm working with a customer right now that wants to put up a brand new sql server in a data center because they that that's what they know and right. they the customer wants yeah. their data on site and it's like you know 1990 whatever all over again
1: mm. Well, that's, you know, if, if people have an investment in SQL Server, then, you know, the cost of change can be huge. I always ask people to just investigate Postgres, because there are things in there that are utterly mind-blowing, and they can solve a problem. For instance, table inheritance. Um, it really solves a, a foundational problem with self-referencing joins on a table. You, that's gone. You know, you have, you have a people table, you have a manager's table that inherits from people, and, man, you know... Co- customers even. It really offers some unique advantages, I think, as among so many other things. Transactionality is pretty neat. Snapshot, isolation, you don't have to configure anymore. It's just part of the package with Postgres. Hmm. All these enterprise features, out of the box, straight there for you. And uh, what was the other one? You can plug in the V8, engine into it the google's v8 javascript engine wow i wrote a i wrote a query in in javascript and blew people's minds <laughs> at ndc one year oh boy anyway so
0: yeah Queries well, and clearly
2: postgres has come a long way since i last used it you know remember when open source meant inferior
1: mm-hmm
2: uh, and after spending a year or two doing a bunch of projects in Postgres, somebody asked me—I think it was actually on the RDE alias way back when. Uh, so, what do you think of Postgres? I said, "What I Postgres is awesome because it's open source. I can pass a table as a parameter to a user-defined function, <laughs> but I can't do incremental backup."
1: <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah.
2: Do you still not be able to do incremental backup after all this time?
1: Uh, I don't know. Actually, uh, Postgres <laughs> people out there, I don't—I don't know about that part of it. Um, yeah, I, I would be surprised if you couldn't, but You'd think, I've never but tried it.
2: It was a comment about open source in general, which is cool stuff gets built first. And sort of fundamental stuff often gets pushed by the wayside in lieu of cool stuff.
1: Yeah, that could definitely be.
0: Well, and that may have been, I, I don't know. Can you say that across the board about all open source things of the day? Well, was that's just the battle. The, was it just the people that were involved in those projects that you were that you were sampling. I'm not sure.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's a fair statement, Carl. And I am talking about Postgres literally of 10 years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm looking now online. I can't see uh, a way to do it, but um, I tell you what, I will send an email to you if you guys want to put it in the show notes. I'll ask my friend, Rob Sullivan. He knows this stuff.
0: Uh, I'm sure we're going to get an email from somebody.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Your point about though, your point about chasing the cool stuff. I've thought about that, you know, specifically with rails. Um, the things that have come out over the years have really deviated from their core competence, which is, um, you know, letting you get to get to pay out, you know, immediately and, and delivering value, business value specifically. And, you know, I hate the asset pipeline and that's, it's just a core feature of Rails that they've spent so much time with and I've, and so many people have wrestled with and hated it. And now they have this thing called Turbolinks and people are like, what What are you doing like, they spent a lot of time shoving Turbolinks into the core, and it has nothing to do with what, to me, what Rails is all about. Right. You, well, know, and, you know, th- and here I am trying to test, and I have to install three or four things to help me get my test suite to run in a reasonably fast manner, as opposed to waiting five or six seconds for the whole app to load into memory. It's just so annoying.
2: Well, and I think part of this is um, an open source project is only as successful as its leadership. And part of the challenge you've got to be up against is that doesn't necessarily mean it's always a meritocracy. If you're building something cool, that always seems to have a little more merit than everything else. You are eventually going to bump into the personalities of those project leaders and whatever foibles they happen to have are going to be manifest in the project. And that's a really interesting problem. You know, that we don't always work necessarily for the greater good. In fact, I would argue we never work for the greater good. We work for our mm. own good, and sometimes that's in parallel with the greater good. And so you get these oddities. You get these strange things that happen with projects. And I don't, I'm not going to lay that up flatly at the feet of open source, As a guy who sits on boards and helps lead various companies and so forth, you can always see the manifestation of the company's leadership's personality challenges. You could call them scars in how that company actually operates. All of them. Mm -hmm. It's nothing different. Open source is not immune to that same problem. It's true. I guess the question is how do we compensate? How loud do you yell when you're looking at these crazy features and rails about how did we get away from what we intended this project to be
1: There was a lot of people that were yelling pretty loud, I'll tell you because um, there's you know there's still some fundamental issues but it's you know and i this is one of those things where it's a free open platform these developers came together and made a thing and I feel bad complaining but at the same time you know i based a business on this and and i remember it got harder and harder to use and you know yeah you wonder like i wonder what what is that mechanic where you know teams come together and all of a sudden they they go through machinations like you know first rails was this whipcrack crazy thing came out boom everybody was happy about it version 2 came out more people got happy about it it picked up steam then version 3 came out and everyone was like hmm, what and it went diving deep into engineering wonkery and everything is refactored and pulled apart it's like the engineers kind of took over and then with the latest versions it's just kind of exploded into this i don't know how you put it surreal <laughs> <laughs> it's just so open source yeah, navel I mean, gazing it's it's i'm not sure what it is and i don't want to sound like it's Rails is bad, certainly not. You still are fully capable of getting up to speed and and going on it. And same as you are with MVC, you know, any any platform these days is going to be good.
2: Well, I also think, you know, you hit a certain level of success uh, and a certain level of feature completeness and everybody sort of panics. It's like, what if we're done? I don't want to be done. I love this problem. I want to keep working (laughs) on this problem. And it's almost like you start manufacturing new problems.
1: Yep. So uh, it's funny, Hanselman and I, I think I'm going to coin the term the Hansel point of open source where <laughs> he wrote a post about this and I got to find the link, but it's, can we just be done now? Yeah. yeah. And he was talking hmm. specifically about DOS blog and he, you know, his open source project. And he's like, I, I just, I'm done with, I don't need anymore. Mm-hmm. And I thought about that with subsonic and I'm like, you know, I, I, this does what I wanted to do. I'm done. And same with massive, you know, yeah. I'm not going to. There's nothing else I need to put in here, so I think I'll stop now. <laughs> it does it,
2: the things it needs to do. And you see this, the same thing with organizations. How many times have we been part of a volunteer group or something that achieves its mission, but you never yep. have a party and shut it down? That's right. Uh, Yo, Which would be the right thing to do. Wow, we really knocked that out of the park. Thanks, everybody. Here's a beer. Right. We can go home. No, nope, yep. we yep. find a new mission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, let, argue, and we, when if we're going to find a new mission, make a new group. So you, yeah, I like it. You invite all the same people. It's okay. I just I feel like we we avoid declaring victory sometimes.
0: So so Rob, have you declared yes. victory? Are you <laughs> or are you going to keep going?
1: <laughs> you know, it's funny after um after Tech Pub was sold and and uh, I had some time to basically relax and take a break. My wife and I talked about what am I going to do, and um. It was it was a difficult time for me because I was in a vacuum. And I thought, well, I could learn to play instruments better. And I thought of you, Carl, and your, your setup over there. And I was like, ooh, I could do what he did. <laughs> and I, you know, and I could have like Lots a, of fun. all these things. Anyway, make music. But uh, I would sit down at the computer and I'd start writing code. And I had no idea why. And I just, so I don't know if I am capable of declaring anything that would be final. Yeah. You know, failure is a good thing to declare because if you declare failure, take a deep breath and you're like, okay, well now I know why I've stopped because I failed, right? And you move on to this. And I'm gonna thing. try yeah. again. Well, or try again and see if I can get it right. right. But if you if you actually you win, let's say, at something, and I don't know if you can call a sale of tech pub a win, it's a good thing, but it's a final point. Well, it's a point success, and, right? It's a success, yeah, sure. It's a final point. Yeah. And you sit there and you're like, Well, well, I guess does that mean I'm done with that now? And it's kind of an empty feeling. I, <laughs> I don't know what to think about that as a person. Mm. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's even a stretch to say success. I like the term exit. There you go, perfect. Hmm. You know, because it, it doesn't doesn't say good or bad. Because that's a very tough thing to judge. Yeah, you've you've exited that business, and that's okay. Because we don't
0: finish things very often, Rob. Yeah, I know it. So sure. I wish you continued success with your new project and uh, it sounds really great. And, and I hope we get the word out and some more people contribute and give you more feedback and, you know, put it in production or whatever they're going to do with it.
1: I never even said the name of it. It's called Biggie. Biggie? a uh, dumb name. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know what? I have a habit of like, I come up with these project ideas and, um well, I don't even know if they're gonna go anywhere, but I need a name and usually what I'll do is I'll just I'll look over at my kids. They have these little animal clay things they put together. Sometimes these are figurines and they have names. All of them have names. And so I'll just look at one. The first one I look at, that's the name of the thing. And so So how do you spell um, Biggie?
0: Because you know, spelling V I G
1: Okay. V I G G Y. V I G G Y. Wow. So my well, my GitHub repo.
0: It does seem like it's somehow related to
2: massive.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. Isn't that funny? <laughs> Was unintentional. It's funny because I wrote this CMS thing uh, for blog series on my blog, and I needed a name for it. And I looked over, and there's this little green horse that my kids have, and it's called Minty. So I was like, "Oh, call this one Minty." And <laughs> people are like, "Where do you come up with your names? They're so cool." I'm like, "Oh, god, my children." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have another membership application. I called Froggy Frog. You know. <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's you know the way it should be.
0: Dude, that's, that's our show. I love it. We've got to leave on that note. Rob, it's so great talking to you. You guys too. All right. Continued success, my friend. We'll see you next time on .net Rocks.